Welcome to Unbalanced.mn, Episode 8, Crime Watch Part 3, This Book is Racist. We're going to finish up our look at the Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information Network by digging into the roots of their ideology to see how they fit into the broader conservative movement, both nationally and locally. Special guest this week is Alex Perrine, staff writer at the New Republic and Minnesota Native, who's going to help us with that national part. But first, hold on to your brain juice. We're about to leap into the reality vortex. We've got a meta fact check. Cubed. Fact check. Laddies and gentlefolk, we are off the rails. Truth is a battlefield life, a simulation, and apparently, reality can be rewritten if you scream loud and long enough. We're fact checking a fact check of a fact check. Alpha News writes that, During the throes of the Senate impeachment trial, the Associated Press has published a fact check that claims President Trump is giving a false account and making distorted statements about the circumstances that got him impeached. This AP article is riddled with unsubstantiated assertions, gross mischaracterizations, and blatant falsehoods. But this Alpha News article is riddled with unsubstantiated assertions, gross mischaracterizations, and blatant falsehoods. Here's three, and apologies up front, but it's not going to get less meta. Claim the first. The call transcript shows no evidence of pressure. What was released was not a transcript, but a reconstruction. As the actual document released by the White House says, a memorandum of a telephone conversation is not a verbatim transcript of a discussion. Like Trump, this document is valid, but hardly unimpeachable. Claim the second. Zelensky has made public statements denying any pressure, bribery, extortion, or quid pro quo, which the AP article admits. But it's problematic to cite an extortion victim as a witness of the innocence of the perpetrator. As a wise man once told Time magazine, Look, I never talked to the president from the position of quid pro quo. That's not my thing. I don't want us to look like beggars. But you have to understand, we're at war. If you're our strategic partner, then you can't go blocking anything for us. I think that's just about fairness. It's not about quid pro quo. That was Zelensky. Zelensky said that. Or, as his point man for America, Andrew Yermak, put it, To be honest, we're tired of these discussions. The entire time you've spent talking about this, we've had people dying in the war out east. Truly spoken like people who want to take the path of least resistance when dealing with foreign political bullshit to preserve their energy for the shooting war they're fighting at home. Claim the third. Schiff claimed his statements were a parody only after Republican Mike Turner challenged him an hour later into the hearing. But here's what Schiff actually said. Shorn of its rambling character and in not so many words, this is the essence of what the president communicates. And it goes on and on and on. I didn't check every assertion made in the piece, but every one I did was false or misleading. Now, maybe this fact check has been hard to follow, but that's the game. Alpha isn't offering a factual rebuttal to an unsupported claim, which is what a fact check is. Rather, they're borrowing the format of a fact check to undermine the very idea that facts can be checked. A major function of right-wing media, including Alpha News, is to assault the very concept that there is an objective reality and that it can be known. It's weaponized postmodernism, like if Monty Python unironically produced Nazi propaganda. The point I'm trying to make with this and every fact check is that you can't give an inch when dealing with these people. They're not interested in interrogating truth to come to a deeper understanding of the world. They're interested in power, period. 
It takes their opposition hours to unravel lies they spin in moments, and their opposition is anyone who cares about truth. Our main story of this episode is the third and final part of our Crime Watch series. We're going to start with a quick recap. Before Christmas, I was looking into Alpha News' crime coverage and discovered that it was sourced entirely from something called the Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information Network, a network of nine Facebook pages, a Patreon, an Instagram, and several websites. The largest of the Facebook pages have more than 30,000 followers, more than MinPost's Facebook page. And while pretty much everyone knows that Alpha are conservative shills, a lot of my lefty friends have liked or followed one or more Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information pages. Just in case there's any new listeners, Alpha News is a right-wing Minnesota media outlet which is run by a GOP communications strategist who also runs something called the Freedom Club, a private political machine that's basically the Minnesota wing of the Coke Network, and you can listen to episode 4 for an explanation of why that's not nearly as hyperbolic as it sounds. Now, we don't know a ton about the relationship between Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information Network and Alpha News and the Freedom Club, but what we do know is documented in Episode 6. The gist is that Alpha News publishes content under the Crime Watch and Information brand and includes a link to their Patreon, while Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information republishes those same stories but attributes them to Alpha News. Now, in Episode 7, we dug into Crime Watch itself, what we know and don't know about their identity, as well as all the ways their coverage is problematic, especially the ways they handle issues of race on their pages. Here's the bullet points. They're aggressively anonymous. Their coverage is seething with barely concealed racial animosity, especially toward black people and especially, especially toward Somali people. This episode, we're going to wrap up by digging into their agenda and ideology. You can't quite, but you can almost trace their ideology back directly to explicit and avowed white nationalism. As for their agenda, they've given themselves over to propagandizing ahead of the 2020 elections on behalf of the Minnesota GOP. Before I get into that, however, I have a correction to something I said last episode. Early on in the episode, I talked about the racial makeup of their coverage and said that their posts identifying black suspects are about in proportion with the percentage of arrests by the MPD of black people, which is true. However, when I went back to double-check my numbers, I realized that they frequently write about groups of black suspects, which I didn't account for. But I did not see a single instance where they wrote about groups of white suspects. Now, in the last episode, Professor DeFoster explained the problem with uncritically trusting police arrest data, but we're going to set that aside for now and just look at the numbers. In 2019, about 60% of arrests in Minneapolis were of black people. Just looking at the number of posts on the Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information Network, ignoring the number of suspects, only about 56% of posts identified black suspects. But 69% of suspects were identified as black. In other words, Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information has an obsession with the idea of black mob violence. But where does this obsession come from? I went through all the page likes for each page in the network, looking for patterns. There was a lot of overlap between the pages, including a pet rescue organization, uh, four of the nine pages liked Forever Home Rescue, and an Islamophobic pseudo-documentary, five liked the film Honor Diaries. However, the page most consistently liked by the network was dedicated to an originally self-published 2012 book, White Girl Bleed a Lot. 
Six of the nine pages liked the book, including the St. Paul Crime Watch and Information page, which wasn't even created until three years after the book was published. Now, this book, mostly unknown outside of conservative circles, is named for a charming anecdote about a black woman attacking a white woman and commenting in the aftermath, white girl bleed a lot. The book presents a conspiracy theory of silence by the media and law enforcement engendered by a fear of being thought racist if they dare voice the secret truth that black people are violent and uncivilized, which is, and I'm very sorry I have to say this, actually racist. As the book itself says, there are so many episodes of black mob violence, so astronomically out of proportion, so often celebrated in popular black culture, that we no longer have to do the mob mind-reading trick. Something is happening. Something peculiar to black people. Again, this is the most consistently liked item by Crime Watch and Information Pages. In 2012, Leah Nelson, writing for the Southern Poverty Law Center, documented uncomfortable connections between the book's author, a guy named Colin Flaherty, and avowed white nationalists, including his book tour appearance on a radio program whose slogan was, Embrace White Culture. This book is racist. It's philosophically and politically at least adjacent to white nationalism. And it shares a lot of DNA with Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information. In addition to the barely disguised racial animosity apparent both in the network and the book, you can set passages side by side to see the similarities in tone and theme. The Network Suspect was black male, 20, gray jacket, black hoodie, blue jeans, white shoes, who fled on foot. Of course, zero info about it from the Minneapolis Police Department or any local media. If they don't tell you about it, it didn't happen, right? The Book If the police didn't see it, it didn't happen. If it didn't happen, no bad PR. The Network. Yeah, as we posted on Twitter yesterday, statistics have very little to do with reality. The Book. Crime statistics are the first refuge of the reporters and public officials in denial about racial violence. The Network. This is how we lower crime stats in hashtag Minneapolis, refuse to arrest, charge, or prosecute on assault and damage to property. The Book. But here is what they do not know or do not say. Violent crime is often not reported. When the book first came out back in 2012, someone, probably Flaherty himself, sent two identical pitches to salon writers, urging. When the book first came out back in 2012, somebody, probably Flaherty himself, sent two identical pitches to salon writers, urging them to cover the book, signing one as Dan Ald and the other as Margie Warren. One of the writers who received the pitch was Alex Perrine. I reached out to Perrine to help me understand the book and its place in the broader conservative movement, which he's been following for 10 years, and he was good enough to talk to me. Hi, I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. I'm the former editor of Gawker, the political editor of Splinter, a former columnist for Salon, and a Minneapolis native. <laughs> oh, currently, currently residing in Brooklyn, New York. What sort of stories do you cover? I mean, you've covered uh, the right wing for a while yeah. now, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my, my beat is national politics, but I do take a fairly broad conception of it. And I think I just have an interest in how the right works. Um, and especially the sort of parts of it that I feel like people who only consume mainstream media aren't exposed to necessarily. Um, cause there, you know, there's a, which is an interest in the right wing media really. Cause there's an entire, uh, parallel basically 
um, institution of media outlets, both traditional print, digital, television, that, um, you know, a, a sort of uh, liberal-leaning American might have no idea what they're saying on any on any of these platforms. And then, But this is the source of where all these very strange things Republicans say and do. That's this, this is always the source of it. Sort of one of the things you talked about is like this alternate institution of media. Um, one of the major themes of White Girl Bleed a Lot, that's also a major theme of both this outlet and um, these Facebook pages, is is a mistrust of media. They devote uh, a fair amount of time to proving any statistics that the media put out are, are lies um, and that the ebb of crime in Minneapolis, in this case, is because of, like, the media just undercovering it. Well, I think that there's a there's a yeah. small irony there because it, um, it's been a while since I thought about White Girl Bleed a Lot. I wrote a Salon.com piece about it in 2012 that you're referring to. Mm-hmm. But I know the style of argument they make about the media systemically undercovering it, but then what these places do is just string together uh, basically unrelated and frequently exaggerated accounts of random crimes sourced from real local media. Uh, like, and yeah. the way, the reason they're able to do that, and the reason they're they're able to make it convincing to their audiences, is because the media has, especially television news, especially especially local television news, have a, has a heavy, heavy, heavy bias in favor of covering violent crime. Uh, so, the, consuming even non right wing media, especially local news, will always make you imagine crime is worse than it actually is. Um, the statistics aside, I, the this sort of this is just weaponizing for political purposes, uh, I think, an absolute feature of American news gathering. And uh, something that, that really leapt out at me, what you were saying, was that, like, on one hand, they preach, like, a mistrust of the media, but there's almost, like, a s- symbiotic... Yeah, well, they rely on it. It's, yeah. it's almost maybe, like, parasitic or... or, or because... Um, you know, I don't think I don't imagine Alpha News has a lot of genuine reporters going out and you know covering the police beat anywhere. <laughs> well, that's where this Facebook page comes in is that it's like a bunch of, and I do think they are actual people who live in Minneapolis who just follow police scanners. That's interesting. You said you mentioned when uh, in your message that you remembered writing it and you uh, remembered the experience of writing that article, especially like the feedback. I was wondering if you could talk about that experience a little bit. Yeah, um, the. The, I wrote about it. I, I, it's not something I would have heard of because I think it was sort of on the even at the time this book White Girl Boy was on the fringier side. I thought of the fringier side of the conservative media, where even I don't spend a lot of time. So I, I wasn't. But I got a, basically a cold pitch to write about it, and me and several other people at Salon received identical cold pitches, uh, telling us that we should cover this book, which was about a secret epidemic of black on white crime, basically. And I thought it was ludicrous, so that I actually started looking into it, and it. It's continued to seem ludicrous, but um, after I published my article, which I in which I was sort of uh, very like clearly laid out all the national and crime statistics showing that it's really much safer now than it has been in decades. Um, you know, I started getting a ton of um, really nasty, <laughs> really, and it's not unusual for me to get nasty emails from right wingers, but it felt like, in particular, the particular tone of this one was that. I was perpetuating this ongoing cover-up, I guess, that you're talking about. And what I found interesting about the response was not just the nastiness and the, and the barely veiled or not even veiled racism, but there was a lot of projection. And that what I mean is that 
there was all of these sorts of assumptions that, first of all, that I was a white person, um, and I do come from a mixed-race family, but there was a presumption that I am a white person and that I don't ever go into the places I was describing as not being crime-ridden. There would be responses like, I bet if you ever left the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side, like, I bet you're scared to do that. And it's like, you know, I, I, I live in Brooklyn, man. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> the thing is, it's not unusual. Like, there are a lot of white people living around a lot of black people. It's a, this is, you know, there's plenty of segregation in New York, but it's genuinely, like, much more integrated than a lot of the rest of the country. The impression I got was that it is based on a very sort of primal fear, but it's also, they're, they're spreading these lies about these places. And, you know, the part of Brooklyn I live in also has a very large um, Arab and Muslim community. I grew up in Minneapolis as the Somali community was, was growing larger and larger. I don't know, there was an idea that I should that they were scared to go to these places where I was sort of spending all of my time and being like, things are perfectly lovely and pleasant here. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I found interesting about the response to that piece in particular. And I do, it's interesting uh, too that it's, if there are people in Minneapolis actually sort of creating this content, I almost feel like they are, they're creating it for an audience that is, you know, scared to go into Minneapolis and see it for itself. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you say that? I do, I, you know, there's, I think there's an element even when I was sort of growing up, this happens in the context of being that, like, from, you know, we don't know why, there are theories, but from the 60s through the 90s, crime, violent crime, genuinely did rise quite a bit, that which coincided with white flight in the cities. And I think we it created a, a lot of people in America who live in extremely homogenous, racially and ethnically homogenous places who are scared of diverse places. I think that that's, like, a genuine thing that drives a lot of this. And I don't know exactly... I don't know if it's one-to-one -one with sort of Republican electoral strategy. I think it just sort of <laughs> dovetails with Republican electoral strategy. But I think that I think that legitimately making people scared of cities is, is like a legitimate part of their project. Oh, I mean, no, the GOP has announced that just within the last few days, the Minnesota GOP has announced that they're going to make this part of their electoral strategy. Okay, um, there, right. <laughs> there's, there's quotes of GOP... There's a GOP state rep talking about how he's getting calls from his constituents that they're afraid afraid to use the light rail, and you look it up, and he represents it was somewhere two hours away from the cities. Really? You know, that, yeah. See, that's no, that's exactly it. And you know, it's funny because I feel like the the boogeyman has changed because white girl bleed a lot is about black on white violence, and then for a while we you know we I feel like the target was immigrants, and and now it's Muslims, and there's always been anti-Muslim animus. But when I was growing up. Like, people were, at the time, they would hear people who were afraid to go downtown. I remember, I don't know, the, the sort of block, the block E development was kind of a big deal when I was, like, a teenager. And, it, well, there was, there was, this, I remember the politics of that already being, like, um, why why are people afraid to go to downtown Minneapolis? Like, I spent plenty of time in downtown Minneapolis, and it was fine. But there was, there was, that was, like, that's, that's been a rural and suburban thing for, I think, for nakedly political reasons for, you know, my entire adult life. What's the Block E development? The, the Block E development was just a, this mega mall downtown. They put up some new development downtown, and I remember the conversation around it being, this will finally get like people who have been scared of downtown to come back because we're cleaning it up. And it's like, they're not, they're not scared of it because of existing crime. They're scared of it because of these sort of heavily racialized narratives. I am very curious about, like, if you know when the, the that, that shift occurred where it became 
crime stuff being about like just black people generally and about like more so focused on Somalis in Minnesota where that narrative began? That is a good question. I don't know when. I suspect it happened after I left. I haven't I haven't lived in Minneapolis for a long time. I moved out in 2003. And so that's actually what is notable is that there was already by that point a large um, population of a large Muslim refugee population. It was already there, but you didn't, people weren't, were not fear-mongering about them. It, and I know people have given credit to George W. Bush for basically saying, you know, Islam is not the enemy and stuff like that, but it does feel like it was not until after the Bush administration when it was finished and Barack Obama was in that people in the conservative movement felt that their gloves were off and it was now fair to completely demonize, because I, I think there's a, a national explosion of Islamophobia on the right, but I, I think it's a um, its origins come from well before then, but it feels like it was allowed to have a coming out of sorts um, in the beginning of the Obama presidency. I mean, as a Minnesotan, like, I mean, personally, how do you feel about the way that Minneapolis is presented in the national media, but especially in the right wing media? I mean, it, it pisses me off like a lot. <laughs> it really, really does. Um, you know, I, I mean, I do. I, I think it's shameful, and I think. And there were other, you know, all of the refugee Minneapolis has a history. The Twin Cities have a history of welcoming refugee populations and helping them to become basically thriving members of the community. And it happened with Hmong people a generation ago. Uh, I think that the story of the Somali community of Minneapolis should be considered a success story and an example of exact of us living up to our values. The fact that we welcome these refugees here and the, the fact that. We can tell ourselves, oh, it's just some nobody cranks out in the middle of nowhere who are scared or who, who are stoking fears about these Muslims. But it's not just a bunch of rubes in the country. It's it's powerful and wealthy people are paying for the creation of and promotion of this bullshit. And yeah, I mean, it, it really it really does piss me off. And oh, there's there's one um, line in your original piece that I I really liked, and I don't remember the line exactly, but it was something about how. Uh, this Colin Flaherty is like presenting himself as like uh, a John Wayne, Dick Harry, who's Dick just gonna, Harry, yeah. yeah, who's gonna go out and like really show people what for, but then like also is talking about how he's scared to leave his apartment. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what I, I think I was sort of getting at that earlier, but that's part of the subtext of all these things is like a lot of conservative messaging is supposed to make you afraid of things, which really butts up uncomfortably with the, their idea that they have a sort of monopoly on masculinity, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's, and that's, that is, that's the funny thing about the message is that it's like, you should be afraid to, to enter these diverse places where plenty of like liberals just already exist. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's so exactly, it's like, it's like, who's the, who's the brave and manly one? Is it like, I'm, I'm afraid to take the light rail or like I take it every day for work and it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> what that reminded me of was this snopping around, oh, you know, we're just going to tell it like it is. We're telling the truth. You just have to live in reality and not just be a feel-gooder. But but also, like, anytime, I mean, like, you talked about, like, oh, but but here are the stats. Here are the, here's, like, what we know about the real world. People are like, well, that's not real. I mean, it is, I, I think it's like, it is, it's conspiratorial thinking in a way because, you know, it's collecting anecdotes and saying that, statistics are lying is it's you know it's not dissimilar from being a flat earther or something but it's it's i don't know there's it's just like a it's a seductive way of thinking to believe that you've discovered a secret truth 
um, that no one wants to admit. The funny part with this version of it is that there is this element of everyone knows this, but only we are brave enough to say it. And then when you respond with, I reject the premise, they just, they don't believe you. But I don't even really know what to say because like the reality is like if their pre- if the premise they were pushing was true, like these spaces, if there were, I don't know, I don't know if the no-go zone thing happens there, I assume it does, but if that, if that were true, then like people yeah. wouldn't go there. And yet you can, you can just go there and see for yourself. <laughs> I, I lived, I lived right by Cedar Riverside, which is, you know, oh, yeah, I actually like I, yeah. a bunch of my friends lived there. I, that was my favorite neighborhood to hang out in. I mean, always <laughs> my favorite neighborhood to hang out in. What What are your big takeaways, especially the way right wing media plays into the electoral strategy? Do you have any like big takeaways in your time sort of watching it over the past I don't know ten years now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think something that they've sort of noticed is that there's not really a, a penalty. Republicans have noticed there's not really a penalty for cozying up to people on that fringe in terms of because I feel like the the mainstream press doesn't take Islamophobia particularly seriously. Um, you can remain a respectable figure um, while basically promoting it, and and I, I think that's I think it's, it's dangerous in that. Republicans are still allowed to, to, while they have completely changed their entire political and electoral strategy to almost, almost jettison policy in a lot of ways, especially economic policy, because that's unpopular. Um, the fact that they're going all in on a sort of fear-based identity narrative without being treated as outside the American mainstream is uh, it's a dangerous sign. So I've got, I, don't know, I've, I don't know my, my takeaway is that I wish that they weren't allowed to get away with it as easily as they have been so far. episode, I pointed out that the Crime Watch and Information Network's central narrative was that black people are inherently criminal, but that a couple other narratives were also apparent. One of these is about repeat offenders. They have a special series called The Daily Outrage, where they feature repeat offenders who were given plea bargains or stayed sentences, then committed more crimes. In each post, they explicitly call for criminal justice reform, but when they say it, they mean like instituting three-strike laws. Many other posts, even if they're not branded as part of the daily outrage, similarly highlight repeat offenders, again, as part of their agenda to pass criminal justice reform. Recall that, overall, 69% of suspects identified by race on the network were black. If you zero in on suspects identified as repeat offenders, however, only 45% are identified as black. When they want to tell the white girl bleed a lot story of racist stereotypes to frighten suburbanites, they cover blacks 10% more often than the MPD arrests them, and all signs point to the MPD over-policing black people already. But when they want to tell a story of a broken justice system and go looking for the most egregious stories they can find to support this narrative, which doesn't rely as much on race, they cover black people significantly less often. This radical change in the demographic makeup of their coverage is key, I think, to understanding the Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information Network. 
They're not local journalism, nor are they a community service. Crime journalists follow crime and crime issues in a specific place to come to a deep and nuanced understanding of a community, its needs, and the dangers it faces. This is not what they do. They've glommed on to a narrative that was lab-grown in conservative media. They follow crime and justice issues in the Twin Cities to curate content that gives the feeling that their narrative is correct and damn the objective evidence that they're wrong. They are one local contingency of a national conservative political movement, and though they haven't completely finished the transformation, they're towing the line of being digital organizers for the Minnesota GOP who've decided to make urban crime a wedge issue as part of an explicit strategy to peel off suburban support for Democrats. As Ryland Eikens writes in The Minnesota Reformer, Although there's not a single Republican in the state legislature representing either St. Paul or Minneapolis, GOP leadership are already signaling that they will try to leverage fear of urban crime to win support in the suburbs. That's where they need victories to hold their narrow state Senate majority and win back the House after a metro-wide drubbing in 2018. It's likely that Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information sincerely believes in their view of the world. But I am dumbfounded at the cynicism of willfully choosing your own opinion over objective reality. But that's what their politics demand. Never mind that crime, including violent crime, is at or near historic lows. Never mind the well-documented racial disparities in our criminal justice system. Never mind the demonstrated failures of tough-on-crime politics. Never mind all that because they know better. They attack Dems, especially the Minneapolis City Council, but promote GOP candidates on their pages, including gubernatorial candidate Jeff Johnson and AG candidate Doug Wardlow ahead of the 2018 election. They support three strike laws. They encourage people who voice support for the death penalty to write their legislators, or else nothing is going to change. According to a questionnaire they sent out to state representative candidates, they want longer sentences, higher bails, and more prisons. I've said it a few times, and I'll say it one more time. Their largest page has more follows than Min Post, more than 30,000. Numerous of my lefty Facebook friends follow one or more of their pages. Their content, which is basically propaganda, may be filtering through your feed without you realizing it. And regardless of your political beliefs, we know that exposure to this kind of messaging warps your perception. It makes you live in a very, very mean, very dark, very scary, very violent, and very unreal world. You live in a dream. You're a sleepwalker blind. How do you know what the world is like? Do you know the world is a foul sty? Do you know if you ripped the fronts off houses, you'd find swine? The world's a hell. What does it matter what happens in it? Wake up, Charlie. Use your wits. Learn something. Under normal circumstances, I don't recommend anyone read anything from any of these outlets ever. But every episode, I select one article that's just Read of the Week. This week, we're digging into a post from Deplorable Housewives of the Midwest. Democrat candidates target Minnesota elementary school student emails. It opens thusly. Democrats have sunk to a new low. Democrat presidential candidates are sending campaign emails to public school students as young as elementary school. Some of these emails are asking for contributions and telling kids where to go and vote. 
the piece is sourced from Facebook posts that are sourced from emails someone received. Unnamed Eden Prairie parents are complaining that their children's school emails are being shared with Democratic presidential campaigns. The proof? Screen grabs of Bernie Sanders asking children for $2.70. The Post reprints an anonymous and breathless screed alleging child abuse by the Bernie Sanders campaign. Selling and sharing student data is abusive. Who else within Eden Prairie schools is selling information? How could this have happened? Another screen grab, this of an email from the Buttigieg campaign, offers some insight. The email reads, in part, Thanks for signing up. The same screen grab shows portions of the student's inbox, including an email thanking the recipient for joining Groupon. The email addresses have been obscured in the screen grabs, which is reasonable, but one left the domain readable. A quick Google search shows that this email domain is used primarily, if not exclusively, by Eden Prairie high schoolers. Is it possible that democurious high school-age children of Republicans signed up with Democratic presidential campaigns, which then included them in mass automated emails? No, oh, it's an abuse oh, of minor children's school email accounts. That's our show. Thanks for listening. One last thing before I go. Please, please follow us on Twitter at unbalanced underscore MN. And for the love of God, like us on Facebook at unbalanced.mn. Please, please, I'm begging you. Check us out online at unbalanced.mn. But I'm not begging the Twerps Freedom Club to leak juicy secrets to me at Logan at unbalanced.mn. Let me know what you thought of the series, whether it was informative to go deep on a subject or if it drug on too long. Or reach out with your questions about Minnesota's right-wing blogosphere. What are you curious about? Is there an episode I should revisit? If you like the show and want to support us, you can tell your friends and enemies about us, which sure, awesome, great. Or you can donate some money to help me justify the toll that this time sink of a podcast takes on my marriage. Just go to unbalanced.mn and click on Donate. Music this week, as always, is by Dan Carroll, who now has a Facebook page and an EP coming out soonish. I'll let you know when that hits. Uh, and special thanks to Alex Perrine. You can follow him on Twitter at Parine. That's at P-A-R-E-E-N-E. -E -E. He's clever, and reading his thoughts is a great way to spend your time. Thanks to Becky thanks to my buddy and being Sarah sounding Kelby. board and uh, providing some basic editorial oversight for reading the part of the Minneapolis Crime Watch and Information Network. You can find him on Facebook and Instagram at The Neighborhood Reporter, serving up easily digestible bite-sized chunks of world news. You can catch The Neighborhood Reporter every week on Facebook and Instagram. What, what is The Neighborhood Reporter also? The Neighborhood Reporter is an independent journal that believes the whole world is one big neighborhood. <laughs> hey, that's facts. That's the, that's the description. <laughs> that's where the name comes from. Um, be sure to check out the Neighborhood Reporter. Wow, hold on. Let me just think, let me just think of what the two things I'm going to be doing. I will be covering international elections and democracy abroad. We'll be talking about things such as concentration camps, massive law changes, and international affairs that can affect millions of people. Sounds hilarious. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, anything else you want to say about it? <laughs> Besides how funny it is? The, <laughs> Sorry for, the, like, downplaying concentration camps. It's actually very sad. The most important thing about The Neighborhood Reporter is that we strive to bring people news that might not affect them directly, but is sure to affect them indirectly. Okay, well, thank you a ton for doing this, man. Yeah, no doubt, bro. Anytime, bro. Really appreciate it. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Something's got to be useful. And thanks to my buddy Nasera Kelvy. And thanks to my buddy Nasera Kelvy for. And thanks to my buddy Nasera Kel. And thanks to my buddy Nasera Kelvy for reading the part. And thanks to my buddy Nasera Kelvy. 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 And thanks to my buddy Nasera Kelvy.